Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. The only part that he was including in the, in the evidence being heard by the jury was what a cyclist should do. But they never said, well, she did all that. Or they never said, on the other side, they never said the obligations or responsibilities of a motorist. Motorists is there alive. Last week, we spoke to Khan about his experiences of engaging with the police as a cyclist. We heard his concerns, which were echoed by Mike McKillen of Cyclist.ie, that the police don't take cyclists' concerns that seriously, prioritising instead the needs of other road users. We questioned whether there were cultural reasons for this, and Mike spoke to us about his belief of institutional blindness within Angarda towards cyclists. In this episode, we continue on this theme, but unfortunately, looking at the very tragic end of it. Neil Fox's sister, Donna, died in September 2016. She had been cycling to work in Dublin city centre when she was struck by a truck. Neil has spoken previously in the media about their loss as a family, the impact of the grief on him personally and about the need for improved safety for cyclists. But today we focus in on his interactions with the Gardaí and how they were treated during such a difficult time. My name is Neil, Neil Fox and I'm from Dublin, um, currently living in Cork. A student, a mature student, very mature at this stage. Um, I do a bit of writing and I do a good bit on cycling and road safety um, activism. I'm, and activism. And I'm 40, 41 so years what old. What are you studying? <laughs> um, philosophy and English mainly. I always say it's always a little bit, um, you're always thrown when you have to kind of put someone in a few sentences. And I think Donna was, was my, born after me, so she's five years younger than me. And we would have found then we had a younger sister a few years later. So we grew up quite close, even though there was five years is a lot when you're when you're a child. Um, but because there was just the two of us for a while. Um, and yet she was always the same. She was very outgoing and yet at the same time very family and close friends orientated rather than, you know, she wasn't the type to be a big party animal or something like that. But yet she loved having fun with her close family and friends. Is like for me, I miss her so much because she was very loyal and very kind. And you know, she's a she would be easy, was always easy to talk to about things. Um, and yeah, and I suppose as we get older, like we'd lost her mum and that a few years before Donna died, and, and Donna was always very supportive. You know, we all like we we kind of we, we we were close at that stage, very close, I suppose, after Mammy died, and um. Yeah, she loved like horse riding and things like that. She was big. She was technically a trained jockey, she had a license and all that. So she had done that for a while, and then she went into um, working in nutrition. Um, she studied for a while, and then she was working in a. At the time she died, she was working in a pharmacy um, in Dublin City, in, near Google. I just can't think of it. Barrow Street, sorry. Yeah, so she was there. And she. It's funny because a few days before she died, um, I just asked her because she was. 
she was there a while. I think she might have been there over a year at that point. But I just asked about the what was it like working there and, and that. And she's she was just she said I'm really happy there. And she said it's like a small family because it's a small it's a, a small um, now I know they've been changed, but it's a small enough business there. And you know there is a really there was a really nice atmosphere there, and she just really fitted in. Um, and then in her own personal life, she was in a relationship. She was very happy as well. And they were planning to build a house, um, I think, the following year. Um, and so there was, you know, it's bittersweet, I suppose, when you look back. It was probably the best, well, one of the best periods of her life, I think. So in a way, you look back and you think, oh, well, it was nice that, you know, that she was in a good place when she, when she, she, when she dies. But then obviously the other part is like all the, if might, what what would have been and, and that, but yeah, but she was really supportive. Like the last time I saw saw Dotto, um in person, she was I I had been in treatment um, for um, alcoholism, and I had just come out so just a few days before Donna died, and Donna had come down and collected me and brought me back to where I was living then, and we had a really nice day. And obviously, it's a funny time when you when you know because you're quite raw coming out of something like that. But um, it was a very peaceful time. And it was, you know, um, I look back on it because I didn't stay in recovery for it at that point, but I did for a while. But I look back on it and I think it was a real blessing because we had a really unusual last day physically together, you know, and it was a really nice part of the country and then a long drive when we were coming back. You do regret because I was thinking like, we were both really, really tired. I was like, that's my last memory because she dropped me and, and we did. She actually gave me a hug goodbye. So it's an unusual one. It's nice memory. It's nice and you know yourself it's also pretty sad but yeah and then the unimaginable happened in september 2016. she was cycling to work um donna was living near the north so just outside balbriggan and she used to drive most of the way into the city so around drum conjure maybe whitehall and um, last nevin direction somewhere there she'd park the car and then she'd cycle she had her she'd normally have her own bike with her and she'd cycle the rest of the way in and it was um, it was pretty safe in in the sense that it was cycle lanes pretty much the whole way to her job, almost completely. Um, now, as we know, the cycle lanes aren't ideal in in Dublin, um, but but like there was a level of of presumed safety there, um, you know. And she was used to cycling, and it wasn't like her first time or anything like that, or she hadn't just started cycling. Um, so she would cycle the rest of the way in, but that particular morning she just um, she had just bought a new car, and so she was waiting just for um, insurance or something. So she got the train into work the day before, and you know you'd always think had she got the train the next day, had it just been a day out, you know. And I think we all do that, don't we? We kind of torture ourselves. But basically, she was turning left at the junction on Gill Street, Seville Place, um, that direction near the IFSC, basically. Um, I'm missing the, I just can't think of the name of the street, but um, that particular area anyway, and it was at a junction. So Donna was in cycling going, she would have been going straight ahead. Um, she was very near her workplace, like she would have been there within five minutes um, had it not happened. And then there was a lorry, a delivery lorry going, and he was going to the left. So, you know, they, you know, they collided, obviously. Um, but she... Um, what would I say about it? Like she would have been killed pretty much instantly. And I know it can sound, it sounds like I'm ordering lunch sometimes when I say stuff like that, because you're kind of, you, I'm kind of used to, you know, phrase, the phrases that, you know, a few years ago would have seemed insane. Like 
you know, but she she died pretty much instantly at the scene, so she would have been killed on impact. Um, um, yeah, so I had gone out for a walk earlier in the morning. Now, when I say early, early morning, like about 11 o'clock, not really early, I, I remember texting Donna because I was meant to meet her the next day. I text a very, and I'm like notorious for sending long texts, but it was a very brief text, like what time or like where or something like that, or we meet tomorrow or something, you know. But at the time I sent that, she would have already been, she was dead at that point. And now I was, I hadn't heard the radio all day because I'd been out in the bed, so I didn't hear so was reports of it on the news now obviously not saying the name or giving too much details but um about it so not that even if i heard it i wouldn't have been in my mind at all i wouldn't have thought of it um but when i was back and i had lunch in the house and then i saw two guards coming to the front up to the front door um and so that was probably quarter past two twenty past two in the afternoon or so um Donna's crash was about a 20 to 11 kind of period in the morning. Um, so so that's just the time frame. I suppose my first instinct was it had nothing to do with me them, them calling to the house. Like I just, you know, I, I don't know why I didn't actually get a, a shocker. You know, some people kind of panic if they see two guards. I didn't. But when they asked for me by name because someone else answered the door, I was a little bit, you know, what's that about? Whatever. Um, and... Yeah, it was strange because basically they've, you know, you've two two people, they're youngish if I remember rightly, and they've to come in to tell you something like that, that your sister is dead and she's been killed in a in a crash and it's such a random thing, you know, out of nowhere. Um, so it's a difficult thing for them to do. And I would say with all the dealings with the Gardaí and different people over the last few years, I would have nothing bad to say about that that process because no one can get that particularly right. Um, it's a job I wouldn't envy doing. Um, so, so what happened was they would have. They we went upstairs and into the sit room was upstairs in that house, and I just knew somebody had died. I just got that sense, and I remember saying, "Is it one of my sisters?" And so I was told pretty quick. They told me um, that yeah, Donna had been killed in a forget the exact words, but I remember it was near the IFSC. He said, and um, it was the. Then they were kind of just chatting. They were very nice. It was done in a very calm sort of way. Um, but the guards um, was looking. One of them was scrolling on his phone. And I remember thinking, what's he doing? It's strange like that you... It's strange looking back that I didn't even notice what they were doing. But um, he was going through the, the RT website, had more information than what he had um, at that point. Because, it, it, you know, they were a different branch, I suppose, of Gartie. But strangely, I tried to, um, it's just recently this has happened since, but I I went back to draw the Garda station maybe the week after to ask who they were, what their name was, just to, to thank them or that. But the station had no idea who had who had been and there was no, they were able to give me the names of investigators of the case in Dublin, but they couldn't, you know, so it's, but I found out very recently that they actually, they're in, inspectors in, our superintendents, I think, in, in Drada still. It's sad to hear that the Gardaí tasked with conveying this information did not have the most up-to-date information or that they hadn't gathered this information before they knocked on the door. How these moments are handled stays with people. It is, of course, the kind of moment we all hear about and dread to think it would ever happen to us. It's the moment that changes your life. For me, it did, like them telling me that. 
and and yet it's it, it's like a new life starts um, and I can't imagine in a case where they where somebody has been murdered or you know something like that because it's it's hard enough to take in sudden death let alone something as you know as dark as that so yeah and they stayed with me I should say as well just to be on the positive side of the guardie you know they did they stayed there and they offered to stay for as long as I wanted on that and I suppose my reaction was unusual maybe but it was, I was just deathly calm and I wasn't um, hysterical I wasn't crying or anything like that I just kind of went into another space and you know that's just the way I I kind of coped or dealt with it um so yeah they they would have helped or they would have done more had I asked like they would have brought me somewhere if I needed to go um or um you know but my cousin lived nearby and, and you know I didn't I kind of just wanted to be around people I knew at that point so yeah as is the case in such deaths a guard liaison officer was soon appointed Liaison officers are assigned to the family of a victim of a murder, fatal road traffic collision or a kidnapping and are responsible for liaising with the family throughout the investigation. The FLO is supposed to provide timely and accurate information on the progress of the Garda investigation and link families in to relevant supports. I think he, he probably was appointed within a couple of days, I'd imagine, um, but I didn't meet him until I'd say it was two weeks after. It wasn't that long after. Um, like, to be honest, until then, I hadn't really asked any questions because it kind of had a funeral and things like that. And I just, I didn't, I kind of had an idea in my head what must have happened, but it wasn't, it wasn't something at that point that was really, I think it was just a shock. It wasn't something I was really trying to figure out at that point. Now it became the opposite. But um, so I went, I just went into him because, I had moved then from Drogheda into the city within a short period. Pretty much within that month, I was staying mainly in the city centre because Donna died. Um, the Garda station attached was the one at Store Street, so it's very much in the city centre. So for me, it felt more more normal um, to go down and meet the guy there than him coming to my house. I know some people would feel the opposite, but I just I don't know. I think seeing the guards coming to the house was enough once, you know. So, so yeah, I built a reasonably good relationship with him. And the first uh, meeting was I just had a few very basic questions. Like I wanted to know, was there drink driving involved? Because that's kind of the thing people automatically ask. I didn't think there would be, but um, and forget what else at that time. But but it would, they were, they, I had no kind of big pressing question because I think I was still kind of, I don't know, I was in a daze in a way. But from then on, I would have met him regularly. And I would say, looking back, it was more personal kind of friendship support than information, you know. And in fairness to him, he would he was not aware of a lot of the investigation um, information in, in, in that particular case. He wasn't. I know some might be um, because his job at that time was specifically to deal with the, you know, to liaison officer with family and stuff. But, you know, with hindsight, looking back, where I was very much fobbed off a lot of the time. But because somebody is nice and you're friendly with somebody, you don't always see it, you know, um, and you forget that role. And my instinct on it at the time, and it would still be, is that he was sort of under, I don't know if the word pressure, but I, I think, you know, that there was a limit to what he was um, advised to, to tell people, I think. I don't know that, but that would be my feeling because um, later on I realised that there was a lot of information that could have simply been been told much earlier. Neil makes a really important point here. 
Kindness and empathy are hugely important. They are essential when dealing with anyone, but particularly when dealing with a family that have lost someone in this way. But it's not enough, and the police role in these circumstances is much bigger than this. As we'll see, the provision of information became a huge issue for Neil and his family. This is an issue we've encountered before. Indeed, lots of families we've spoken to have had this complaint. And while people grieve differently, having accurate information, even if it's hard to share or we think it'll be upsetting, is essential for those trying to make sense of what happened and trying to undertake the task of grieving a complicated loss such as this. There are two legal processes which commence once someone has died in a traffic collision. There will be a guard investigation to determine whether or not criminal proceedings will occur and there will be an inquest. The, obviously it was inquest, but at that point um, they did think, or we at least I was led to believe that they thought there would be a criminal case. There was, there was obviously a file being um, done up um, and evidence being gathered and, and stuff, um, forensics and that and that that was going to then be sent to the DPP to make a decision. So I was aware of that in a vague way at the beginning. Um, in fairness, at the beginning, it felt like you were given a little bit more information on things like that. Um, but as the process, as the time went on, and I know it wasn't a hugely long um, time span compared to other people's cases, but, um, but as time went on, it was less, I felt there was less information and less contact when you kind of would have nearly thought it'd be the other way around. The inquest then is a process by which the cause of death is legally determined. It's something people don't know a lot about because most of us don't want to have to think about such things. Inquests are tasked with four things. Determining who died, where, when and in what circumstances. The aim is to help us understand how people have died, both to answer questions about that particular death, but also to enable us to learn from the death and prevent future similar deaths. Inquests don't have to be held for all deaths, but legislation at the time required an inquest for all road traffic deaths. Inquests don't determine the blame for the death, there's no conviction or anything like that, but they can decide that the death was because of an accident, misadventure, suicide, natural causes, or even that it was an unlawful killing. Determining the cause is obviously very important for the family. We see that from the effort currently being undertaken in relation to the new Stardust inquests. Depending on the complexity of the case, inquests can actually be quite quick events, sometimes less than an hour. Pathology reports will be read, witnesses will give their accounts and the family will have an opportunity to make a statement. Sometimes there are juries and in addition to finding the cause of death, they can also make recommendations. The inquest itself won't be held until other legal proceedings have been completed. So in this type of case, they will wait until the decision around prosecution has been made and for the result of any prosecution that does occur. But in the meantime, the coroner will hold hearings to be updated on these processes. So families will often have those hearings while they are waiting to know about a prosecution. So that was September and then into the first week in December, there was a phone call, I think, or maybe the second week, um, to say that they were, the first hearing uh, um, at the, the coroner's court was, was being called. And I think it might have been the 15th or 16th of December that year. It was a week or so before Christmas. Um, we were actually a bit surprised by that. We didn't expect it to be th that soon. Um, 
So basically what that is, is that you go in and you're, you notice a, it's a little bit more than like in, in our case, Anne-Marie Donna's partner, she had to, she had to stand up and they read her statement because she had written or she had given a statement to the guard. So the, the clerk read the statement and then she, I think, had to answer maybe two questions. That was just to do with um, identifying Donna. It wasn't to do with the actual um, incident itself. Um, and just a, a kind of a, a brief outline of Donna's day um, beforehand and, and, you know, just a, a more general thing. But when I say more general, it's it, it, it's very difficult to do that. Sorry, I don't mean it like that. Like, I think for her, that she probably, it was probably very hard to do that and to stand up and, um, and you know, and, and for us as well to, to, you know, it's just a strange situation. And that was the very first time. And then the guards, so one of the guards, I think, made um, a short um you know, maybe a paragraph length of statement, really, that's about it. Um, but you, the the part then is that the coroner then kind of states that there's the, there's the file going to be sent to the DPP. It wasn't prepared at that point. Um, and then we will have, you know, we, we'll be able to plan it better. But you've, you, you're basically there to get the next date that you know is going to be adjourned. So it was a, we did about two or three of those. But at the first one, it was difficult because they, they said like the the... I'm not sure if you if the phrase is cause of death, but like multiple traumatic injuries. I remember, yeah, I remember that phrase. Like, and it's strange because the first time, if you're not used to, and most people aren't used to court systems, especially that type of court system. Um, so you're not used to. We were used to see like as the the things had been written about Donna, and it was all quite positive and good, and that used to like kind of at that point seeing her name in, in papers and stuff like that where you're not used to in a court situation seeing people standing up talking about her and then saying her cause of death and you know they're all it's all clinical language um now it's fair it's you know it's the system but but it, it is just so it has an emotional impact even though you don't realize and i think for for me um that was the that was a bigger shock than the actual inquest itself because by then I was kind of a bit more used to what to expect. But but yeah, you don't realise it's going to impact you because it's only three three words or something. But it's just the I think it's the venue as well, and then you've everybody is around in in guardy uniform and you know it's a very formal um, event I suppose. And, and the coroner's court in Dublin is quite small and yet it's quite old school and it is it's quite they're in pews and stuff, so it's different. One of the problems that the Foxes encountered was how information was given to them in and around the inquests. We would have had, I think we might have met the guards briefly before and after, we'll say that day. Um, and normally at the the shorter hearings that I, I my other sister and me just went to those ones. Um, we normally met the liaison officer before or sometimes after as well. Um, but sometimes that wasn't wasn't a great situation because I I remember we we had um, difficult or I had difficulty with it because sometimes you are told a, a new piece of the jigsaw if you want to call it that out of the blue just before you went in into the the coroner's court um, and you'd be thrown already anyway you know um, so that would be something and that kind of was a bit of a pattern. What what kind of things? Yeah, um, just to explain that when Donna had died, because Donna didn't, she her crash was not near our house or near anyone that at that time we knew. 
So there wasn't even like kind of local talk about what might or might not have happened. And so there was, it was very much, we, we were very much not in the know, um, apart from the basic fact that she was going one direction, he was going the other direction. Other than that, we, we had been told nothing. Um, like, obviously, the questions were asked, but they were just fobbed off. But at that point, what, what would happen was that you would, like, for example, one of the days it was about the DPP file. Um, the first couple of appearances, the file was with the guardie still. They hadn't fully prepared it and they hadn't sent it to the DPP to decide if there's going to be a prosecution or not or to give him that um, opportunity. But at the, just beforehand, now I mean like maybe 15 minutes before we, we to go in, probably even less, the liaison officer came over to just a small hotel near Gosaris and we were in there, just Leanne and myself. And he came in and I remember he hunkered down. He wasn't even sitting on the seat. And he basically said, oh, we've just got word that the, the file has gone gone to the DPP just now um, and that there's only a 50-50 chance uh, and it is all told like in this was pre-COVID you know <laughs> places weren't empty you know um, and you know it just felt odd even at the time because normally it's afterwards you kind of you look back but I remember thinking why didn't you just say this yesterday or the day before like I didn't believe that they had just put it that morning it'd be a bit of a coincidence like um, and the part was that um, the Gardaí had had not recommended a prosecution. Um, so it was a big change from the narrative I had been kind of led to believe up until then, that there was, there was a strong case and that it was, um, you know, the file was very big. To a grieving family, the fact that Gardaí had submitted a file and didn't believe a prosecution was likely is a monumentally significant piece of information. It would be inherently upsetting and would generate a great many questions. And the family should be treated with respect, have that information conveyed sensitively and be given time to ask those questions. The idea that this would be conveyed to the family in a busy space 15 minutes before a totally separate hearing for which they would already have been emotionally worked up is appalling. Like it wasn't an arranged meeting in a hotel, you know where like you might have a room because I know they do that as well. Um, but this was just like, you know, the way like you're you're in a queue for a cup of coffee, for example, that sort of feeling. And somebody says, oh, do you want toast or not? Or, you know, it's it's just um, yeah. Now my strong impression. Now, maybe I'm still naive, but I don't think so. On this one, my strong impression was that he had been instructed to do that just moments before um, by an inspector. Um, you know, in the case, that's what I would I would think, because it was just it, it, it just was a bit rushed. And not that Neil has to explain or justify why he will be upset at this decision, but he does. I always try and get it across. It's not so much about being vengeful or something like that. The, the reason that you wanted, I wanted a criminal case was, I suppose, to prevent other road deaths in similar situations, but also to have, even if it wasn't a criminal case, to be given enough of an understanding to know what had happened or, you know, the, the most likely thing that had happened. I, I think what upset what upsets you more is that when there's not a prosecution, if there's not, if it doesn't go to a court, a criminal court, that people automatically think then that the person who was killed was to blame or is at fault. And I think that that's very difficult um, to emotionally deal with, I think, even intellectually, um, because you're, you've been really through the ringer at this point before you're told that, that it's not going to go ahead. So you, you 
And I, th- I think you're living in that. I was sort of living in a limbo where part of me was like putting my life on hold until there's a case. Then we'll prepare for the inquest. Then we, you know, and then each thing like that. But then you're kind of torpedoed. And the way we were told, like just kind of ad hoc almost, um, that there was not going to be, that the guards weren't recommending the case. That all added to, you know, the, the sense of inevitability that this is not going to, there's not going to be a prosecution. So I wasn't, I was disappointed, um, but I wasn't surprised at that point. A quick interruption to ask you, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and rate us and head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you. It's the price of a cup a month and you'll get access to versions of the episodes without interruptions like this. And if you're not in a position to support the podcast, we'd appreciate you sharing it with your friends and you can follow us on Twitter at Police Podcast. I suppose for me, it was very disappointing, not so much about Donna's, because it wasn't going to bring Donna back or it wasn't going to, you know, like it wasn't really about Donna at that point for me. It was more about like, we have to send a message that, you know, this these type situations are happening. They're happening too often. They can happen again and they can happen to anybody. Um, how do we deter that? And like, I'm not saying that somebody should get a, a really long stretch in jail um, like I think each case has to be taken individually, but but I think that there has to be consequences and very clear consequences um, to get different types of, of charges. Um, so, for example, maybe losing your license or to remember as well that this, to my knowledge, anyway, this person um, who had, you know, who, who had knocked my sister down and she subsequently died. That person was still fully licensed to continue to drive as a professional driver you know, without any qualms or questions, as far as I'm aware. Anyway, legally, he would have been allowed to do that. It's not personal about the person, that that guy at all. Um, It's more for the bigger picture. Um, I think prevention um, is much more likely if there's there's thorough investigations. Um, And even if there's this decision, even had the decision been made not to prosecute, but if it had been very clearly defined why, Um, it would be much easier to accept. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties has recently published a report, which I was involved in researching, on how people experience the coroner's system. Liam Herrick from the ICCL talked to us about why inquests are very difficult experiences for families. I think if you look at the chapter of our report on the experience of families, um, it really takes it through all stages of the process in terms of before the inquest and through the inquest itself. Um, and the theme, I think, across all of the families that, that we worked with was the lack of information uh, that was provided to them. And I think also like an overall lack of formality um, in terms of what they might feel that they were entitled to or what they might expect. So in terms of the lack of information, it goes to a lack of information about the progress of an investigation by the guards initially. Um, and I think what really jumps out um, at you from, from the experience of the families was the number of instances where families were given crucial pieces of information about the circumstances of their loved one's death or about the investigation, either at the inquest or immediately before the inquest and how distressing that was for them. Um, it feeds into kind of an overall sense of disempowerment but that the information wasn't provided to them as a right 
you know, it was it was as a gift that that this was given to them. Um, and, and for many of them, the gatekeepers about this crucial invest, invest, uh, investigative material was the guards. It was it was in Garda Shikona, that they had information that they weren't sharing in a structured way, that they weren't providing as of right, uh, that they were giving to the coroner, but it was a secondary consideration that the family got it. And I suppose it really feeds into, you know, the overwhelming sense from the families is that what they really wanted was information, that that was their primary concern, was was to find out what had happened and to learn at a later stage in the process that there was crucial information that had been there all along, you know, about crucial events that happened around the, the death of their, their family member um, that either the guards had for a long period of time and didn't share with them or the guards had given to the coroner and the coroner then also uh, didn't provide to them it, it, it is a theme that comes up time and time again. The family encountered this rushed way of giving information at another inquest hearing after the DPP had decided not to prosecute. It was the day that they gave us the actual date of the full hearing, you know, the actual inquest itself. Um, but on the morning, like, not even on the morning, like a few minutes before you went in, maybe five minutes before. And it's quite a busy area because um, it's at the, the Lewis is right in front of it there. And But yet the Garda station's next door, um, you know. So in another case, like they, there was plenty of room in there to be brought if they needed to tell us something. But um, the in I think it was the inspector this time or one of the other guards said that, um, oh, um, you, you have to decide now that um, whether you want to review a, a review of the DPP decision, I think that was the forget the fra- phraseology because there's so many different things at that point. But it was basically I was being told that if I wanted to um, question the decision not to have a prosecution, um, which which looking back is questioning the guards because it's the guards' investigation and it's them that gives the the advice to the DPP not to um, prosecute. Um, so you're being asked by the guards whether you want to investigate the guards in a sense, you know, in, in one way of looking at it. But, but on the other hand, it's just at the doorstep, just going into the, the court. There's loads of people, complete strangers around, milling around, because it's, it's one of those days where there, other people are there as well to get their, their different dates. And, you know, so it's, it's always a strange place at the best of times. But um, I think it was, a, if I remember right, it wasn't a particularly nice day either. And so everyone's kind of huddled at the front. And basically... I, I felt I was cornered into agreeing to not review it because I was told that you have to decide now. Um, even though in back of my head, I was like, I don't, because it, it just didn't add up to me that you would have to make that decision. You know, why would you be making it seconds before going in? Um, but the, um, so yeah, and then they, what was the, the, the thing that was brought out a few times by, by some of the guards was that, Oh, but if you if you go ahead with that, it will draw it all out. Um, it could go on for another eighteen months. Um, and you kind of get into that narrative when you're there. Like it's it's as if it's you that would be holding everything up. Um, you know, by simply simply querying. Because I had got I had got a, a, a short a summary of the of the reasons why um, there wasn't going to be a prosecution from the DPP. Now I had got that myself. Uh, uh, I'm not sure of the timeline, but a month or two maybe previous to that. And to be honest, that just left me with more questions. And I actually, from reading that, I couldn't understand at all why there was no prosecution. But that's neither here nor there at this point. But but it was just that um, you were kind of being rushed into this. 
And then because I was thinking, oh, well, other family mightn't want it to be dragged out and, and things like that. But you're just put on the spot and you're not always thinking clearly. And as you said there, it's literally before you're going into a court to deal with something that's quite traumatic. Like I know um, my sister Leanne was, was very upset even coming to the to the couple of days to the to the hearings, like beforehand, nothing to do with anything else, but just the idea of it. There is no doubt that a family's decision to ask the DPP to review their decision not to prosecute is something which families should take time over. The DPP's own website and information leaflets state that families have 28 days to ask for such a review. So again, this was an appalling way for Angarda Kona to engage with a grieving family. Neil has very strong feelings on the fact that there wasn't a prosecution. I really get the impression, like from being a bit further away from it now, is that the whole idea in terms of road road crashes in general, you know, unless they're an extreme case where it's very obvious, like maybe a, a drink driving case or you know somebody massively speeding or something that's very clear cut, there just doesn't seem to be an appetite from the guardie to to have a criminal case, um, and. I used to think that that was to do with, oh, they don't want to put the family through it. But I just, that just doesn't, that doesn't cut it with me, to be honest, because I don't believe that, I don't believe that they're going to be that, you know, concerned, um, you know, like, it just doesn't add up. Because if they were that concerned about the family, they would do a lot of other things more compassionately than they do. So why would they, you know, just focus on this? So I think it saves, it saves people it saves time, I suppose, and things like that for them. And like, is there enough workforce? And, you know, there's lots of other questions that come on to that one. But, but yeah, I think, you know, road, road deaths in general aren't really given the same recognition that other violent deaths are. Um, and, you know, for various reasons. Neil doesn't make the direct connection to police culture, but others do. We talked about this last week with Connor Mike, the idea that there may be a degree of victim-blaming cyclists and a preference towards the driver perspective. We link this to the cultural characteristics of machismo and also to stereotyping, that cyclists reporting incidents may be seen as troublemakers in some way. Here, we see the culmination of that. If cyclist reports and concerns aren't taken seriously, if drivers aren't policed in how they engage with cyclists, then we can question whether that permits behaviour that leads to deaths. And if those deaths aren't properly policed, then what message is being sent to drivers? Like, thank God, like very few crashes are, are, you know, are like manslaughter cases or like where somebody is trying to hit somebody. Like, I would say it's tiny proportion. But my point is that you would imagine that because it's actually something that could have a really good outcome if enough cases are taken and you know if there's enough um to prohibit people from engaging in that you know in, in the negligent kind of driving or just to be more aware um but by kind of making it sound inevitable oh should these things happen accidents happen you know that that that's something that's leaked out into society as a result you know and just like putting the you know the onus sometimes then is on the victim really and the victim is dead so you know it's a it's a strange one. The focus then shifted towards the inquest itself and Neil has very clear views about the Garda role in the inquest, which are mirrored by the ICCL's findings. I hated like even thinking about the inquest for a long time afterwards because the, the verdict system in, in an inquest, because obviously the inquest is not a criminal 
uh, it's not a criminal case, but there are there's the cause of death is is what you might call the verdict, I suppose. Um, and at the moment, in a lot of a lot of coroners' courts around the country, the Gardaí picked the jury. Um, it's a very it's very controlled, like the whole thing, looking back is, you know, and it's not even that I'm saying there's something sinister in that. It's not necessarily for, like in Donna's case, it certainly wasn't from a bad motive. They were genuinely, you know, sad by what had happened and they were helpful to, to the degree they were. Um, you know, it wasn't the case of there was nothing like suspicious or strange about, you know, in the background. I'm not suggesting that at all. And in most cases, there isn't when it comes to road deaths. But by by not investigating, they're not doing their job. Gardaí play a huge role in inquests. Outside of Dublin and Cork, coroners are part-time officers and have no assistance. So under the legislation, Gardaí then fulfil what are called the coroner officers' roles. Some of the duties included in this role include hand-selecting the jury for the inquest, gathering all the relevant evidence and presenting it at the inquest. This can blur the lines between criminal and coronial investigations and raise big questions for families. Again, this was a huge feature in the ICCL report. I mean, I think it was a very stark theme again in the report about the the problematic nature of the role in terms of the independence of the process. Um, You know, that that you, you have a clear conflict where the coroner doesn't have the capacity to carry out investigations himself or herself and that those investigations are carried out effectively by the guards for the coroner. So there are some cases where that conflict is very obvious, either where the guards were involved in the events that led up to the death of somebody or the family believes that they may have had a role or um, where the circumstances of the death have already been subject to a criminal investigation involving the guards that the family might be might feel was deficient in some way. And then again, the guards pop up again as carrying out the investigation for the inquest. In both of those circumstances, there is a clear conflict of interest between the guards acting as the independent agents of the coroner and the guards being in some way the subject of investigation themselves. And I think that that it's very hard to get away from the fact that with the best will in the world, that is always going to lead to a problematic scenario. Um, you know, that, that's just unavoidable and can only be addressed by the coroner having the, the capacity and the resources to, to act independently with their own agents in terms of carrying out an investigation. Um, other things that I suppose pop up here as well is... is Again, this is compounded particularly in in rural areas where there's real difficulties about the juries that are appointed to to act in inquests, where it seems that there is a relationship between the coroner, the guards and the jury. And that really feeds into an alienation um, of the family in the process, a very asymmetric relationship of power and indeed access to information in the process. So... I, I think it's very hard to get away from the fact that it's impossible really for the guards to um, be able to carry out this function in an appropriate manner, uh, no matter how ethically they behave. And certainly there are instances where there's, you know, families believe that, that, that guards have behaved in an inappropriate way 
in exercising these functions too. Um, and, you know, some of the families report that even before the inquest, when there might have been a guard investigation, any time that they asked questions or suggested a review or suggested issues be opened into the inquests, they encountered resistance and opposition from the guards, that there tend to be a general culture of being resistant to expiration of certain issues, perhaps in the belief that they might open the guards or other state bodies to criticism in some way. So, you know, rather than being a proactive, positive investigatory body, if anything, the role of the guards was seen as one that was resistant to opening up of questions in some cases. Then, as the ICCL found, the process of the inquest itself can be very difficult for families. The inquest is supposed to be a place for asking and answering questions, but families found that Gardaí were actively impeding this. But Neil also believes that this control the Gardaí have over the inquest bleeds into all dimensions of it. Just for an example, the forensic um, reports, um, the guards on that. I remember, I remember him very well from the. I don't remember his name, but I, I remember him in the in the court that day in the coroner's court. And um, when he was given his evidence, and his evidence was really key because the forensics is the main is the main part, like um, about logistics and that. And like for one thing, he was barely audible. He was looking at the ground. Um, he had no interest in being there because um, the coroner and the clerk had to ask him a few times to look up and speak up and things like that. So it was a bit, bit strange, like that alone. I don't know how common that is, but that was just our experience. But his his actual evidence and statements. Um, the only part that he in, was including in the in the evidence being heard by the jury was what a cyclist should do. But they never said, well, she did all that. Or they never said, on the other side, they never said the obligations or responsibilities of a motorist. The motorist is there alive. You know, it's a, I don't know, there's biases and stuff, I suppose, but in relation to cycling, but you know, it's it's just strange. It's very controlled by the Guardi, is my point, that they pick the narrative, they give the narrative out, and people bow to it. Normally, not always. Um, you know, and, to, and then you're given the impression that to review it, to question it, um, will only draw the whole thing out. It could lead to a worse situation. It could traumatise other people in your family, or it could this, that, or the other. Um, and do you really want to put yourself through it? Um, and as I say, it's not... I don't like believe it's from a malicious point of view or, or, or that, but I do think it's to save it's a save hassle um, for the guards. It's a safe hassle. Um, it's to save case time. Um, um, and that's in my opinion. It's not. I, I can't back that up on my own anyway. But I do think um, had it been a pedestrian, had Donna been walking at the time, um, there might have been a different outcome. There definitely would have been a different narrative around this. There, there is a, a feeling that it's it's very, and I think it's true that there's very few prosecutions um, and very few convictions in the country um, on cycling deaths um, and people who are killed cycling. And, you know, and they really go to town <laughs> on trying to prove that the cyclist is at fault to an to a extraordinary degree. And do you think the fact that, like, because obviously the inquest happened after the criminal investigation was completed. Yeah. Do you feel that the decision not to prosecute, do you think that had a bearing on the inquest? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've, I've actually not really phrased it like that before, but yeah, absolutely. There's no question there. Um, I think in the in in the minds of the the six or seven people on the jury, it would have definitely had, and um, possibly on the coroner. I'm not sure on that, but um, and on the public as well. If if the guardy have made a decision that there's not a case to be answered, um, that's you know, and that does influence. That would that would influence me. Like, well, it wouldn't now, but if I had been blinded to all this, yeah. So again, it is. It's very the guardy. It stops at the guardy to hold out of it. Um, and as I said, I would balance that by saying, you know, I'm not one of these anti guardy types. <laughs> I, don't, not, I don't, that's kind of a, a patronising thing to say, but I mean, I'm not somebody who had had bad experiences with guardy before or since. Like, Well, I suppose what's really striking to us about, you know, the research that we've done is what you're left with at the end of the day is that there's nothing new and that many of these clear deficiencies and these really traumatic experiences that are avoidable that families go through were, were identified 20 years ago, you know, uh, that, that, that effectively it was acknowledged a long time ago that the current system was not fit for purpose. And yet the political system has neglected this for, for 20 years. And I think when you hear the, the stories of ordinary people going through really upsetting experiences and that they have been re-traumatized or their trauma has been compounded by an investigatory mechanism. You know, it's a very compelling case for sorting this out. And uh, at the moment, the system doesn't serve the coroners, the guards, the state agencies, but it certainly doesn't serve uh, the families that are bereaved. For Neil, these experiences, of course, impacted on his attitudes towards the Gardaí. I would have felt that initially... The guards were very much on your side and with you. But then as it goes on, you realise, well, they're not really, because they're not answering my questions. They're not, and you shouldn't, I shouldn't have to ask the questions, to be honest, because at that point, like, you just want basic information. You want a basic idea of what happens, the time outline, um, who the person is that that's um, the other person involved in it, like the driver in this case. Like, like I mean, like, just a name, um, but like all those things never came. Um, but yet when I spoke, to, I spoke to the coroners. So I wasn't aware. I suppose I could do that. But I don't think they don't think you normally can get that much information. But I did get some information. But this would have been a few weeks before the, the full inquest was heard. Um, and I rang, and within a minute or so, she had given me the more information than I got um, in the nearly eighteen months at that stage. And I would also say I met the. A, a girl did CPR on Donna at the scene and I met her. She got in touch with me um, through social media a, a few months before the inquest was held. And so we had met up a couple of times, a really nice person and that. And, but she had given me really much more reassurance than the Gardaí had by denying information, if that makes sense. Like she was able to, to say, you know, just about, I don't want to be graphic, like, but about injuries and things like that, like physical appearances and stuff like that because you hear so much and most of it is rubbish because we did we couldn't say we, we didn't identify Donna on the day so 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 you know you your mind does go everywhere when you read words like crushed and things like that um so it really was reassuring in that way because you realize that you know obviously it's a horrendous outcome but like she was not like a bit sort of thing it's just a horrible phrase but I just know, like, I've heard that people have said that to me. So, like, it's not, 
an unknown thought that people think that, you know, um, and a lot of it is to do with the way it's written about as well. So by denying people uh, information, they're not protecting them. And like even the, the medical information, I wonder, look, looking back, why is it so controversial to know the medical, like why, like the injury, why, because like, just like if, I just don't get that, you know. I don't mean like very detailed information, but just basic information. Because it makes you, it's very difficult to make sense of a surreal death um, like that. It's really hard to understand why Angarda Siakana would not give this information to families. If the belief is that it would be upsetting or unhelpful, then the Garda approach is simply wrong. We come back to this idea of a trauma-informed approach. If these policies were properly trauma-informed, then it would be standard procedure to give the information being requested, as this helps families with the grieving process. Look at the work of any expert on grieving, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her five stages, or William Warden and his tasks of grieving, and you will see that not having this information inhibits the ability to grieve. You're better knowing, you're better knowing um, as much information as possible in advance because you have to, I can only speak for myself, obviously, because I, I, I'm the only one who, who's been through my thing. But I think what for me, I had a narrative in my head from early on of what must have happened that day. Um, now, I don't mean the ins and outs of the actual crash part, but the time frame and, you know, who was there, who wasn't and that. And you build on that because that keeps you. It's like if somebody dies suddenly in a normal, you know, in a more natural causes way um, and you don't know how they died. Um, and then the doctor says, oh, well, it was definitely something to do with the heart. You store that and that kind of just it's just we need a level of closure on these things because, um, you know, and I suppose so in my head, Donna had died at was it no five to eleven in the morning um, and that she had been, you know, she was cycling, cycling, helmet and all that on, and and that the the car or the lorry and her collided at the junction, and um, that he had over, you know, overtaken her basically, um, and that was based a lot of that was based from the newspapers more than like when I look back on it, it was more the, the first few days I didn't read them until later, but like I did Google them afterwards just for information. And like, that's kind of shocking when I think back. I was looking at them for information and not because I felt that it was clearer from them than from the Gardaí. Because I felt the Gardaí were, at that time, I felt they were trying to be too nice to kind of explain stuff. Um, and then I, I kind of, I tried to do um, some cycling activism as well to promote safety shortly after Dogga died, really. And since then, but I remember I met a lot of people involved in cycling campaigns and that was helpful because they kind of, they gave me, you know, they gave me a kind of a, a, an insight into the into the inquest system as well, because some of them had gone to different ones. Um, but the actual information coming from from the Gardaí was much more minute. Um, look back. If we step back and think about all that Neil has shared with us, then there are a number of different questions which emerge. There's the issue of how cycling is policed and whether there is a bias against cyclists, which may result, even subconsciously in a degree of victim blaming, impeding the likelihood of prosecutions. Then there is the Garda role in the inquest, both directly, but also how their work at the police investigation stage might influence what happens at the inquest. And then there is how grieving families are treated and whether they are being given the information they need 
and are entitled to in a respectful manner. Like any loss of life is difficult, but it, it is very difficult when you've, you've gone through the whole police and the end of it as well, um, because it's it, it's another realm to, you know, there's grief, then there's, there's all sorts of things going on at the same time. Um, so it is, it's difficult. You know. It could be made a lot easier. Liam told us about the recommendations that the ICCL report made in relation to inquests, pointing particularly to the fact that outside of Dublin, Gardaí handpicked the juries. The report has 52 recommendations, which are very far-reaching. I mean, the bottom line with the the coroner system is that it's chronically under-resourced and isn't structured in such a way that it can fulfil the very important task it's been given to. So, you know, you can have piecemeal reforms of certain aspects of it, but ultimately you need a well-resourced national coroner system, which has professional full-time coroners supported by part-time coroners that can actually really take a proactive role in investigating the circumstances of death. There are some specific aspects that perhaps can be addressed more quickly, and one of which is the role of the guards. I think that, you know, in the interest of the guards and in the interest of the coroner system, there needs to be clearer demarcation here. Uh, And, you know, we were very much influenced by the example of the neighbouring jurisdictions in the UK, where uh, investigations now are carried out by agents of coroners who are employees of local authorities that are not the police. So there's a clear separation. That's something that can be fixed. Um, It will cost money, but it can be fixed. Another aspect uh, was certainly about the selection of juries too. And, And, you know, families had different experiences. In some cases, they were very impressed with the independence of the juries. In others, they really felt that the juries were part of a system which also comprised the coroners, state agencies and the guards. And if you have an informal ad hoc way of appointing juries, and if you have instances where the same people are brought back time and time again to act in juries, well, it's not a jury in the ordinary sense of the word. I mean, I think the readers of the report would be surprised to hear about how juries are appointed in inquests and that very often they can be the same people being brought again, brought back again. Um, so I think that there are things that can be fixed quite easily. And also the overall experience of families um, of being distressed through the process, of not being properly supported, of having just insensitive experiences of a number of families being present for inquests in inappropriate buildings on the same day, uh, not being given basic information about what's going to happen. They are things that can be dealt with by having proper quality and compassion in the process and of course having the necessary resources to make that possible. Talking about the death of a loved one is not an easy thing to do and I'm very grateful to Neil for taking the time to do so and for doing so so compassionately. Thanks also to Liam from the ICCL not only for contributing to this episode but for their continued work in this space. We note too that a number of high-profile inquests are coming up soon, that of George and Kensho and those of the Stardust victims. We hope this work helps you understand a little better what those mean and please do give those families support wherever you can. Next week, we'll be back hearing from one of the Debenhams workers about how they've been policed. This episode was produced by Tony Groves and Brian at Cruise Ahead.